Welcome to Unexpressed, where we express the inexpressible. My name is David White, and I'm the publisher at Whitefire. Over the years, I've had the privilege and opportunity to work with some really amazing people, very talented authors mostly, who have a unique view of the world. Our focus has been on the things that are important and challenging, viewed through the lens of storytelling. Our readers and our listeners are a part of that process. So if you're like us, and you're looking for a podcast that will challenge you and encourage you to challenge yourself, you've come to the right place. Today we talk to author Susie Finkbeiner. She's a Whitefire author of Paint Chips and My Mother's Chamomile, and quite a few with a couple of other publishers, including A Cup of Dust, A Trail of Crumbs, and A Song of Home, All Manner of Things, and the soon-to-be-released Stories That Bind Us. This is one I'm looking forward to after having a chance to talk to Susie. Susie was one of the first Whitefire authors, and we couldn't be prouder of the author and storyteller she's become besides just being an all-around amazing person. We talk about how the theme of human trafficking plays a role in paint chips, how we need to remember to have empathy, not just for others, but also for ourselves. I personally found this to be a bit of a revelation, and maybe most importantly, what it might take to fix our broken communities. We're talking today with Susie Finkbeiner, uh, author of, I guess, just two books with us, Paint Chips and My Mother's Chamomile, but you also have quite a few with some other publishers. You went on after working with us to to have quite a prolific writing career already. So maybe you want to introduce yourself and, you know, say some a little something about the other books that you've got so that people have a, an idea of what they are. Well, thank you for having me today. I have written, yeah, a few other books since being with Whitefire. Um, I have the Pearl Spence series, which is A Cup of Dust, A Trail of Crumbs, A Song of Home, set in the 1930s. Uh, a young protagonist, and that that's with Kriegel. And then All Manner of Things with Ravel, which is set in 1967, Vietnam-era book. And then my latest is Stories That Bind Us, also with Ravel, early 60s. Yeah, I, I definitely want to, to talk about all five, I guess, of those, but... <laughs> Um, maybe we can can back up and, and just start with the question I've asked everyone is kind of comes down to why do you write what you write? Because obviously you're not writing um, the normal sort of middle of the market uh, Christian, even historical fiction. Uh, you know, for us, I guess they were uh, they were contemporaries, but you went and did uh, uh, depression sort of Dust Bowl era uh, stories with. Uh, Griegel and then and then this uh, Vietnam era that that's a that's a little bit of a departure it seems like for for where we are so and then of course your books with us were were obviously way way out of the potential mainstream so why why do you choose to write what you write or do you do you have a choice I sometimes I feel like our authors have compulsions of I have to write this story and and just get through it so yeah you know I I think that. It, it goes back to my literary background. I was a student of literature, high school and um, college. And the books that I gravitated toward were not necessarily the ones that everyone loved. I, I love the books that are, are more emotional, more family-based. And so that tends to be what I write, are emotional family-based stories regardless of what era they're, they're found in. Um, I think that if anyone read through all of the books I've written, they would find that they're, they're stories about families. 
and what it means to to be in a family and to be at home. And I think that, it's because that's what I like to read. Yeah, that's that's really interesting though, because I think I, like my mother's chamomile is definitely a story about a family, albeit potentially a fairly peculiar one. Um, Paint Chips was also about a family, but one in a very sort of broken, disjointed way. Like it's it's not the traditional family like you might imagine. Right. Yeah. At least not, even not in the end, but particularly in the first, I guess, half or so, there there isn't much, by the way, of a, a, exactly a family dynamic. So, um, so. Well, and I think yeah. that family looks different in in all different circumstances. So, family can sometimes mean a group of people who aren't biologically related, but who relate to each other, who love one another and serve each other. Um, and that, it, that's, that's kind of how I see the church um, as a family. We're a little dysfunctional. Maybe a lot dysfunctional. <laughs> okay, all right, all right. Oh, that's being nice. <laughs> but, um, and I think that that pleases God to see us taking the part of, for one another and, and living as family because we are his children. Okay, that's again. That's really you. You went straight straight to the the heart of the thing. I, I think I might want to go back and, and dig in a little bit more into the the question in paint chips because, you know, there's some some big dysfunction in the family there, and I won't spoil you know some of the the, the father type of relationships and appearances in there, but you know there's some uncomfortable stuff that that happens there. So how do you see? the way that you uh, try to think of how to say this, how do you see the way that you address family in your fiction? How, how does that relate to the way you see it or the way you see things in the church? Or, I mean, since you went there, I'm trying to now imagine, I'm, I'm picturing myself thinking, you know, are there, are they analogies or are they something, something different? Well, I think that there are two sides of it. One side, um, I've known a lot of people who have had extremely dysfunctional families, um, extremely broken relationships with different family members, particularly with their fathers. Um, interestingly, when I was writing Paint Chips, I was active in the anti-trafficking movement in Grand Rapids. And nearly every single woman that I worked with, that I spoke with, who had been in that lifestyle, they all had struggles with their fathers. They all had something wrong there. And they were looking for that. They were looking for that relationship elsewhere. And what they didn't know was that um, the kind of relationships they were having with men were not a healthy substitute. Um, so I think that, that that was one part of it. And I don't think it spoils it to say that that's, that's a major struggle in paint chips for the characters is that they are, they're dealing with having been trafficked. They're dealing with a loss of a father, um, dealing with the abuse of a father. And ultimately they find that the true father, their Lord, is is the relationship that will heal them. 
that doesn't mean that it takes away all the pain and all the suffering, but um, it is redemptive. And another side of it, I think that another side of it is just looking at the way that the church has hurt some people, a lot of people throughout history, and, and how that is not how God wants his children to behave and act toward one another, but there is redemption in it. There is healing in it when we are able to peel away those layers and find that our true identity is not in who hurt us. It's not in who dumped us. It's in who redeemed us and saved us. Okay. I almost think, well, we could just go ahead and stop and call it a, call it an interview there with like that. That's the, I mean, that's like, that's the heart of why I think we always loved your books and what we, what I always tell people about it, you know, when they read the cover and you go, oh, trafficking and abuse and broken families. I don't think I want to read that. And we go, no, 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 no. Trust me. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's beautiful. They, they think, how, how is that possible? Well, sort of think about your life in some ways, you know, not everybody has been through trafficking or abuse or anything like that but we all have time times and things where we go that's so broken and the the redemption that we have uh is sort of so miraculous and i i don't know it's right well sometimes we have to see the extremes of the human condition in order to fully understand the condition of our own hearts and our own histories um because it takes us out of our our experience to show us how someone else lives and functions and survives and how someone else receives grace in order for us to step back into our lives with empathy and compassion and gratitude for the lives that God has given us. Yeah, so the word empathy gets thrown a lot thrown around a lot in these in these discussions that I've had with with everyone, and the whole idea is just that fiction creates so much empathy. And but I think that this is the first time that I've heard someone say say it quite in the same way. Like usually the idea is that you see a character that's very different from you, and you're able to create create a bond with them, and that bond allows you to connect better with other people. But now what you're almost saying is that it, it allows you to connect somehow better with yourself and, and ground yourself better or something something like that. I don't know if you can dig into that. Well, I think that um, that is one of the superpowers of fiction, is that it does create within our hearts this this depth of empathy. That's, that's my goal, at least in what I write. Um, and I think in order to fully develop a sense of empathy for others, you do need to have empathy for yourself. I, my friend Jocelyn Green, and I often say to each other, you need to be as kind to other people, or to, you have to be as kind to yourself as you are to other people. In other words, you need to show yourself some empathy because if you don't, you are minimalizing the the way that you can minister to others, the way that you can encourage and serve others yeah so what does it mean that we don't have maybe a full understanding of ourselves or something like that again i think that that that's an idea that is almost revolutionary to me and i'm just i'm running it through my head 
Well, you know, I think that our culture really values strength. It values the um, pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality. Um, it values pushing down anything that would be indicative of weakness within us. But that's not healthy in any way, shape, or form. And so I think that that when we are able to tap into that, when we're able to say, this is where I'm weak, um, but this is where Christ fills me. This is where I'm lacking, but this is where the Holy Spirit makes up for it. In fact, more than makes up for it. Um, when we're able to, to look into our lives and stop beating ourselves up and see that we have a purpose, we have a mission, we have the love of Christ, then we will be better able to serve others and, and, and point to that Christ-like light that we're all supposed to be glowing with. Yeah, so I, I think that we also have a, an aversion to accepting help. And I think that maybe that's what you're, you're getting at too, to a degree is it's not just like that the, the Holy Spirit fills us up because sometimes we're not ready for that. Um, right. uh, but if we can allow other people to come in and, and speak to us and, and to, to borrow all the, the sort of Christianese phrases that sometimes I hate, but to, to sew into us and, and, and hold us up and, and those kinds of things. Absolutely. I, I think that for years, you know, I was, I was raised by a single mom. And so for years, it was really hard for me to accept help because um, I was raised in a we can do it by ourselves type mentality. Sorry, mom, if you're listening. And um, <laughs> but it was hard for me to accept help. And sometimes it still is. But I find that when I, I slow down, I humble myself, I go to someone and say, this is this is what's going on. This is what's upsetting me. This is what I need prayer for. The response is, is always compassion. It's very rare that someone says, nah, I'm not going to pray for you. I'm not going to, you know, help you out. I'm not going to pep talk with you. But, um, but there's always that fear of rejection. There's always that fear that someone would, would say no, but generally they say, yes, they want to be helpful. Yeah. And, on the other hand, like there have been times where I think I could really use some help. I just wish that someone would come to me and and say, you know, how are things going? Like, you know, that they really they care so much that they they want to come and find it. But I guess the truth is that we're sort of we don't want to necessarily be, but we're self centered and and all that. And we we need someone to to come to us, or we need to go to someone else and say, you know, I do need that that help. At least this is. This is a problem I have. I, I had um, I had a missionary friend who always very often said, I don't understand why my friends don't come to me and say, what can I do to help you? And, you know, I guess he's gotten beaten down with this whole idea of he has to go and ask for help all the time. Mm. And and that gets to be exhausting. But I think the the thing you said, the pull your, yourself up by your bootstraps, like I, yeah, maybe I'll come back to that, but that idea, that mentality stops us uh, asking for help. And and it, it's so funny because so much of 
everything you want to do in the world is you can't do it alone, right? Like there's very little that you can do alone. I mean, maybe you as an author, you might be the, the one thing that you could really sit and do, but that doesn't necessarily get your books published and out into the world. No. So, um, well, and it's this, this mentality of, am I my brother's keeper? Yes, I am. And I, and is my brother, my keeper? Yes, he or she is. We, we were put in community for a reason. God did not leave us to wander alone and that does not please him. And I, I see so many examples in the Bible where, where these, these people who were not much different from us, they needed each other. They could only serve God well when they were in community. And, and that's an example to us. And it, it, there are rare friends who know instinctively that you need something, <laughs> but that's because they're very in tune to you and you've got that, that depth of relationship. Well, and I think that can be a place where you can really be hurt because sometimes they don't and you think they should. Right. And then because you don't realize necessarily that they, they have their own issues. You know, I've, I've had that where you, know, you have family members who you think they ought to know what what's going on and you realize later that you know they had health issues or uh, problems with other family or friends or something like that and you go oh well we sort of both failed to come to each other and ask and and hold each other up and mm-hmm. because we were expecting something so yeah. yeah i i wonder if to a degree our community isn't broken uh sort of fundamentally because shouldn't that be an open discussion all the time but maybe that's just again not necessarily is that our culture now or is that just not how we're made as human beings uh well yeah and i think there there's a there's a lot to be said about being a person who listens um because often in conversation you'll catch clues um for instance a close family member of mine recently had a medical emergency and it was pretty scary. And in the, in the mix of all of that, I forgot to ask certain friends of mine to pray because there was just a lot going on. And then one of my friends heard something in passing that I said, and he made sure to check in with me later to see, Hey, I heard you say this. I wanted to see how you're doing. And I think that takes a special a special kind of, of learning or listening and empathy and ability to um, remember what's going on. And that made me feel very, very loved and appreciated that, that he came back to me. But I think that um, a lot of it comes down to that empathy piece that we, we value people enough to, to try, to try to look into their lives and see what's going on and, and feel for them. <clears throat> so I almost want to just really put you in a, in a tough spot and say, all right, how do, how do we do all that and how do we fix it? But I, I'm not sure. Maybe you do have a good answer and I should just ask. So what do you, what do you think it takes to, to get to that point and rebuild the communities? I think that this is something that I, I have been contemplating a whole lot. Um, I go to a very large church and it would be extremely easy to just 
walk in on a, on a weekend, sit through the service and walk out. Um, but it takes intention. It takes the intention of the staff. And this is just an example. The staff is very intentional about, about touching, um, not touching, but, but checking in on people about making sure that they're meeting people. It takes work. It takes intentional moments of slowing down your day and, and maybe texting someone who's, who you're thinking about. Um, but I think we're so fast paced and I don't know if this is a good answer and if you want to keep it, but we're so, we're in such a fast paced culture. We have so much to do. We have got so many places to go and we think that we're connected to people because we're friends with them on Facebook or we follow them on Twitter. And we are not, that's not, that's not authentic connection. It's a, it can be a start to authentic connection, but it's not the end. And I think that, that we need to, to take time and, and, and maybe not connect with 500 people, maybe connect with three. You know, I think that we, we have, we've changed the definition of friendship to be very superficial, but in-depth friendship is walking together, living together and bearing each other's burdens. Yeah. And, and that's hard. It's hard. It takes work, but it's, and it. it's hard. It takes work. And I think that you're right because, you know, maybe you can only sustain three or four, I don't know, maybe some people can sustain half a dozen of those types of relationships, but there seems like there has to be a natural tipping point or, or stopping point there where you just, you realize that you can't, how do I say this? The problems that we have emotionally are, are so emotionally overwhelming sometimes. Like they can be the smallest, the smallest thing or the biggest thing. And to have half a dozen people where you're, you're trying to be there for them, uh, that's, that's a lot. And the idea that you can have 500 friends or, or you know, what the Facebook limit is 5,000. Um, that's, you know, you might know 5,000 people, um, but to, to actually have 5,000 people that you, you in any way, shape or form sort of understand them and carry their burdens is, uh, unhealthy almost, I guess, dangerous even. You know, I love the idea of having large groups of people sort of in prayer for one another and that you can reach out to and touch in that way. And, you know, you can post the, the requests. But, you know, sometimes I think I'd rather just have three or four or five that that, you know, really care. I, I don't know. I'm, you know, I'm not going to debate the efficacy of, multi, you know, large number of people praying or anything like that. But, right. I but think that it's really it is important to have. You know, in, in my phone right now, I have half a dozen people that if there is an emergency, if there's a crisis, I can contact them and they will be at my house within minutes. And, and they know that they could do that with me too. Um, but I, I, I think it's important to identify that and, and see that those 5,000 friends, they, they might care about you and they might be able to pray for you, but but they're not going to be the ones to come over at two o'clock in the morning and help if you get sick, come over and clean your toilet, you know? Um, and 
but I do know people that don't have that. They don't have those kind of um, connections. And, and that makes me very sad. It does. Definitely. So maybe I'd like to leap, loop back around because um, you were talking about at the time when you were writing paint chips, you had a, uh, you were involved with the human trafficking movement in, in your area. Is that something you're still involved in or has that changed no. with life? It has changed with life. Um, there, there can be some dangerous situations. And when you have small children, you have to be really mindful of that. Um, but at the time, I was in, I was a co-founder of the Michigan Abolitionist Project, which now if I go to a truck stop and I see a poster in the women's bathroom saying, if you are being trafficked, if you know someone who has your phone number to call for help, um, and mobilizing different abolitionist groups around the state. I was teaching creative writing at a transitional home for women who were leaving what we call the life, um, leaving human trafficking in Grand Rapids and trying to turn their lives around. And it was, it was a great time, but it was, it was for a season. And um, I learned a lot about compassion about not judging people's lives before knowing what actually happened in their lives before, you know, to lead them to where they were. And I just wasn't seeing a lot of concern among Christian groups in general for, for what happens in our own country. Um, a lot of churches were we're reaching out to missionaries who are fighting human trafficking in other countries like Cambodia, Thailand, um, the Middle East. But I wasn't seeing a whole lot of it here because the empathy wasn't there. And I thought, if I can write a story that could maybe change someone's mind to see that the woman who is walking down the street looking for a job, that she's not subhuman, that she has value, that she's had a lot of tragedy, that sure, she's made some bad choices, but so have I. And, um, and to see that there is the possibility for hope and redemption in her life. Um, that was, that was what I wanted to do with the book. I didn't know if anyone would ever read it, <laughs> but I'm, I'm so, I feel so fortunate that you all took a risk on it because it was a risky book. And I'm yeah. so glad. Well, I think this could sound awful, but to a degree at the time, it was a very, one of the early books for us. And mm -hmm. honestly, we didn't have a lot to lose. And it was a beautifully written book. And, you know, what is someone going to, it, it, the worst part it, from where I sit is that we weren't bigger and able to really push it out into the world more. And it seems like, you know, there might be a little bit more interest in those subjects today than there was when it first came out. But the the pushback against it was was really a surprise to me. Um, not big, well, maybe it, for the same reason that you wanted to write it, is I thought, surely this is something that people... Okay, how about, how about I say it like this? This is a really great opportunity to do something amazing. And, um, you know, I remember a few years ago... I read a book, it was a, a long way to get to the point, but it was a book called The uh, 
the fourth turning, and it talks about the different generations and the expectations of of certain generations. And um, I I remember that the, it was talking about, for example, like the World War II generation, the what everyone calls the greatest generation, and um, maybe not everyone, but a lot of people. Anyway, um, but that they were a generation begging to have someone ask them to do something great. And at, around that time, like that was when the new, the, the new fourth generation every 20 years was sort of coming into, into their own. They were, you know, uh, some of them were going to be 18 to 20 year olds and that kind of thing. So it was the same sort of era. And I thought this would be a really great opportunity for someone to come and say, okay, you have the chance to really do something. And I thought that there would be a hunger more so for that than than it than it turns out there is and i guess again now i'm starting to see it more but what's what i've found to be funny in um some of the conversations i've had with other people about it now is human trafficking has almost become a cliche in storytelling and i think how did we go from complete ambivalence and people not wanting to see it and not care to cliche um yeah yeah i i had a a, a big time um like uh, screenplay editor and sort of script doctor, um, we were talking about uh, another person who it was in in theirs, and uh, and I, I said, yeah, you know, we have a story too that I you know, worked on an adaptation for, but you know, no one wanted that ten years ago or however long it was. I was like, oh, you were one of the first people to do it. It's <laughs> like, yeah, but then no one, like I, you know, they slam doors in your face. So mm-hmm. I, I know there was a lot. A lot there and a, a roundabout way to talk about it but well and I, I do think that you're right um there's nothing that that um puts a spur in my bonnet more <laughs> than someone who writes a human trafficking book because usually they get it wrong um i think that paint chips is not a human trafficking book i think it's a book about redemption it's a book about about God's mercy. It's it's a book about about how how God works all things all things for the good of those who love him and even people who don't love him yet. <laughs> and um and human trafficking is an element in it. Um I think that when someone endeavors to write a human trafficking book or an immigration book or any of these things when they when they want to champion a cause, they should just write nonfiction because what happens in those books if they write it as a novel is that they are heavy handed, they're beating people over the head with it, and they are exploiting the people that they are saying they hope to champion. Um, I don't think that they realize they're doing that, but that, that is what happens. Yeah. The idea that they're getting it wrong. Like, again, I think that that is a huge reason why your book worked so well for me is number one, like you say, you didn't, your goal wasn't to show us that process and what it's like and, you know, what really goes on, even though there are bits and pieces of that, there's windows at it or into it. It was really to show us the people and the redemption and, and to make us understand and connect with them. Um, yeah, I'm trying to I'm trying to figure out how to say this that, that's not going to come off as as negative and judgmental. But um, you know, one of the recent 
uh, films that that is being done is going to come out. Like it, it comes off as it's it's a sort of action adventure story, right? Like we're going to go and we're going to save people, and I think, yeah, that's I guess that's compelling for for a visual media, but it, it's not what we need to care and to want to do something about it, right? Right. Like, and, and you know those kind of stories. It it makes people want to drive down the downtown. I don't. I'm downtown here. It's a lot different than it was ten years ago, as far as trafficking is. But it makes them want to want to be like these these armchair heroes and go and save them. And that's not how it works. Um, the the average person has no business going into a safe house and try or going into um, into a human trafficking situation and trying to just strong arm their way in and rescue someone. That's not that's not how it works. Um, yeah, and what I think that really needs to happen, particularly in the church with regard to this, is things like aftercare. I know it's not a brilliantly, uh, you know, it's not a sexy subject, right? It's not like the police breaking down doors and saving people. Yeah. But the real saving of people seems to happen after they're out of the life, after they're trying to figure out, all right, what do we do next? I, I You know, because I don't know enough and I don't know the st- statistics and that kind of thing. But I have to think that there's probably, you know, a high suicide rate and a high recidivism rate and all of those kinds of things. Well, a so, lot, of, a lot yeah. of these, these, and I can't even say it's just ladies, it's, it's men too that are trafficked um, from, from boyhood. But a lot of them either were addicted before or become addicted to some kind of substance in the life. Um, many of them have mental illness that is undiagnosed and untreated, and the drugs are self-medication. And so the trauma also, it, it makes the mental illness worse. The drugs make the mental illness worse. So most often, we're dealing with people who not only had a tough life, they have massive trauma, they have arrested development, they have um, all kinds of addictions and a level of psychosis that an average person cannot deal with. And so this is where where churches need to figure out how to mobilize the mental health community and the um, rehabilitation community and find housing for these these people as they're transitioning out. Another aspect that the church needs to focus on, is prevention and a large piece of prevention is is finding out what that root cause is what is causing it it's it's basic capitalism it's supply and demand there is a demand for this um for people who who um desire to I don't know how to say it nicely. <laughs> no, I don't think you need to worry about saying it nicely, really. I mean, I mean, there are a lot of people who who want to to engage in sexual activity with someone and pay them for it. And and we need to we need to strip that demand away because if there's no demand, there's no need. There's no there's no um, there's nothing to fill that space if we just get rid of demand. And so this means that as churches, we address pornography, we address um, lust and sexual exploitation, 
um, in various different ways because the statistics are that if someone is engaging in pornography, it is a downward spiral and they will they will keep looking at worse and worse things and and not only to to cut off the demand, but also to help heal people's hearts who are stuck in that addiction because it is an addiction. Um, yeah. And I have to also think, and I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but, but the, the fact that our culture today, maybe not necessarily the church, but maybe, um, I don't know, that there's an interesting line there, but our culture today sort of says, sure, go ahead, you know, engage with pornography, pay for it even, um, that, you know, that's perfectly fine for whatever reason. I, I don't know why there's a, an acceptance of that. Um, and that there's, there's also still the, I wonder if people want to tacitly say that even prostitution should be a, a perfectly viable, uh, you know, option in life. Yeah, there are a lot of people that say that, and they say that it's empowering to the women to have the choice to work in those industries. But what they're not thinking is the long run. Um, people who view pornography, it, it changes their brain chemistry. It changes their, their way to function and healthy relationships. Um, women and men who, who even if they, they choose to work in the sex industry, they, there are all kinds of different issues there. There, there are illnesses physically and mentally and spiritually and emotionally that they encounter throughout their lives. And it's really, it's, it's very dark. It's the whole thing is very dark. And that's why as Christians, we need to be the ones to bring the light. So maybe I'll, I'll change subject here and, uh, and go from, uh, you know, that very dark to my mother's chamomile, which is about a family who, um, they they work in a particular trade that you might call dark. So why did why did you go in that that direction? Well, you know, um, after I was done writing paint chips, waiting for it to, to release, um, I I was with my husband's grandmother when she died, and I didn't realize how traumatic that would be. Um, Okay, and I think I, people would say, why is that? But I, yeah. Well, um, I was the one that was holding her head and, and, um, and just, just, it was, it was, a, it was a tough end. It was, it was, a, she fought it. And so I think that that was what made it harder. She was really scared at the end. Um, and so I, I absorb people's emotions. <laughs> and so that's, I think that's why it was so traumatic. And the way that I function and the way I process is by writing. And so I wrote a lot of really sad stories. In fact, my writer's group called me Sad Susie for a year. Oh. And, <laughs> um, but when I was at her funeral, a funeral, um, a female funeral director walked in, and I'd never seen a female funeral director before. And it just kind of planted the seed of, what would that be like to be a female funeral director? And the idea of, of that just, it grew and it blossomed and became an idea of who takes care of the funeral directors when they lose someone. Um, 
And it was a, it was a story. I wanted to write a story about mercy, about just pouring mercy out because it's been poured into us. And that, that book has a very special place in my heart. It was, it was difficult emotionally to write because I, I learned everything about death I possibly could. And not only did I have to confront um, what it will be like to lose people I love, but also to be the one, you know, eventually I will die. And I really had to confront that. And so that was very difficult. So what I find, and I'll admit again that it's been a long time and a lot of books since I've read that one, but I don't think that you're, the sadness comes through. Again, it's another case where all of the sort of backdrop sounds sort of scarier and <laughs> and more emotionally draining and, and sadder than it really was. I mean, it's definitely, there's definitely some, some sort of hard heartstring pulling kind of moments like, but yeah, like the, the, the grace and, and all of that stuff seemed to, to be, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm so good at talking really. This is, this is why I run a publishing company and not a, <laughs> a broadcasting company. But, um, so, so how did you balance what you had to learn with, with what you were sort of putting out into people? Well, you know, I, I think we've all been to funerals or funeral visitations. Where... I try to avoid it, truly. <laughs> yeah, I think most of us do. But sometimes you can't. Um, and I just, I was, I kept reminding myself of the times when I was at one and people were standing around sharing stories and laughing. Laughing at, at the, the funny things that happened in that person's life, the funny things they did. Um, for instance... At my, my grandmother's died three days apart, which is, it was too much. Like they could have, they could have scheduled that a little bit better, but, um, they didn't. I'm just joking. But, um, at the second grandma's funeral, I was exhausted. I was, I was just beyond. And so, um, I told my cousin Megan, I'm not going to go look at her at the end of the funeral. And I'm just going to, I'm just going to head out because I just emotionally, I can't take it. But then my dad grabbed my arm and pulled me up in front. And I looked at her and my, my heart just broke completely as if it wasn't broken enough. And so I very dramatically, because I'm a dramatic person, very dramatically ran out of the room, found a couch, sat down and just sobbed. But then my cousin, Eric, came to me and he said, Susie, I don't, I don't know why you're here. And I was like, why are any of us here? We shouldn't have to deal with death and all this existential stuff. And he said, no, no, this isn't the place for you. And I said, I know, I know. And then he said, um, Susie, this is the men's bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> I looked and I saw the urinal and I said, who puts a couch in the men's bathroom? That's for women. I rushed out, you know, <laughs> but I think that, that, um, when we are in, we're, we're looking straight at, at death and we're, we're seeing um, mortality and we're faced with our own mortality, I think that sometimes God is pleased to give us something to laugh at because it helps remind us that life goes on and um, it's mercy. 
And so I, I intentionally worked in comic relief into my mother's chamomile. It's not like Saturday night live comedy. It's subtle, but it is there because, because sometimes life is just funny, even in the face of extreme sorrow. And that's how I balanced. Yeah, for sure. So I think because I'd like to make sure we give it its proper due, uh, I'd like to hear a little bit more about your book that's releasing very soon. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if you can tell me a little bit more about that one. Um, you know, I hate to skip over a whole series, but. <laughs> well, you know, I think honestly, I think that people who love my mother's chamomile will love stories that mind us. It's, it's along that um, kind of quieter story. There's, there's not a whole lot of sensationalism to it. Um, but it is the story of Betty Sweet. And very early in the novel, she's widowed. And she's, she's only 40. And so how, do you, how does a 40-year-old who has lived several, like most of her life, married to a man, especially in the early 60s when a housewife's job was to take care of her husband and then if she had children to take care of them, but she didn't have children. So she lived her life taking care of her husband and now he's gone. So what's her purpose? And and then she, she becomes the primary caretaker of her five-year-old nephew and finds that her purpose is is to help him understand the world a little bit better through storytelling. And it's, it's a special novel to me because it, it, it's very close to my heart and very close to um, my worst fear, which is losing my husband early and, and some of my deepest wounding, which was dealing with a family member who has um, profound mental illness. So that's, but there are there are funny things that happen in it too. I did balance with some comic relief. <laughs> no, no more sad Susie there. So, no. <laughs> no. Yeah, I I wish I had taken the time to actually read it before this because it would have would have been we, we could have had some more back and forth about it. So, wow. uh, so but I, one of the things I would like to ask is why. Why the Vietnam era? Is it just because of the the contrast in the expectations of of people then, or is is there some some deeper thing you wanted to keep in the historical space for some reason? Well, I since I was a child, I was very intrigued by the nineteen sixties. The entire decade has always been such of such interest to me. Um, I love watching movies from that time. The music from that era is some of my favorites. Um, and I think that that's because it's my parents' era. And my dad is a Vietnam veteran. And so he talked about Vietnam a lot and his experiences there. I didn't realize how much the war had impacted my childhood until I, until I started researching the 60s. 
um, and just finding out why he did things he did, why he said things he said um, when we were kids. He did write his his memoir of serving in Vietnam for me to use his research. And so that made me feel a deep connection to him. That's interesting that he would be willing to do that. I've, I've heard so many stories that basically go the other way that people won't talk about some certain things at all. So Yeah, he, he said, please do not ask me about these things. Um, I'm only going to write them. I don't want to talk about it. Um, but I was fortunate enough to, for all manner of things, which is set in 67, I was able to interview a Vietnam veteran who was very forthcoming, very honest. And I think that that's how he is emotionally healthy is because he, he doesn't hold it in. But yeah, most Vietnam veterans are, are very quiet about what happened. And I think that that's how they were raised. Well, I think that's true for a lot of, of veterans when it comes down to it. I think, you know, obviously the World War II generation was notoriously quiet about everything. Yeah. Vietnam veterans, I think, had to be to a degree because it was so unpopular. Right. They came home to, you know, not parades, but to being shouted at. And a lot of them, when when they flew in and, and landed, most of them flew into California. Um, they would take off their uniforms and throw them away because yeah. it was dangerous for them. And my dad has very strong opinions about hippies. <laughs> um, and he has, it, there's a reason. And it's because um, they weren't, they weren't necessarily peace loving. They, some of them were very scary. Yeah. That, I think that's a really strange, and I'm, I'm sure you get into it, I guess, then dichotomy about not having empathy for, for your fellow people. Like it's not, it was none of their faults. And I think it's easy for us to say that uh, now in retrospect. I have no idea how I would have responded if I lived in that time, but I hope that I would have been a little bit more empathetic to the people out there uh, having to be in the middle of, of the mess, right? Like it wasn't their choice, but it was their choice. I don't know. It's well, it's hard. Know, for my dad, he, he would have been drafted because his, his draft number was, was such that he was he was going, and so my grandpa, who was a veteran of World War II, he was a medic um, during the B Battle of Okinawa, so he saw some really terrible things. No kidding, yeah. Um, but which we never knew about until he had Alzheimer's and he would relive them. But um, he told my dad, "You need to enlist in the Navy, and then they won't send you to Vietnam because if you get drafted, you'll go in the army and you'll die." And that's, yeah, that's a harsh reality and yeah. thing to say to someone. Right, especially your 18-year-old. Because um, I'm sure, I, I don't know what his political opinions were, your grandfather, but I have to imagine he wasn't particularly thrilled about about the concept, or maybe he was, I don't know. I mean, again, it, it's easy for me to look back in, in retrospect and say, yeah, maybe Vietnam wasn't always the best idea, because we know how it turned out. Well, and if... It, it, see, my grandpa was a conscientious objector, which is why he was a medic, um, because medics weren't at, during World War II didn't have a firearm, so he wouldn't be obligated to kill anyone. Um, so I think that he was still he still maintained that, 
Um, but he was also against communism, which is what the Vietnam War was really about, was fighting communism. It was supposed to be about, at any rate. Right, right. And it, it, it became a power struggle in Washington. But um, there's, the Vietnam War is so complex. And, and if anyone wants to learn more, they really ought to watch Ken Burns' documentary and Lynn, Lynn Novak's documentary on Vietnam because it gives an exhaustive history of how we got there, why we were there, why we stayed, and why Washington was so opposed to, to getting out. Yeah, and we'll leave notes or uh, links to those kinds of things in the in the show notes at the end. Okay, yeah. So, well, and I will also say, like, going back to veterans I know, like, I know some who were then veterans of Afghanistan and Vietnam that were my friends from high school or, or even college. And I think um, their opinions were maybe a little different. Um, I remember, uh, I'm trying to remember was after one of the friends had gotten out or whether he was still in and on leave, but toward the end of his, his army career. And we met and went to a comedy club. It was a silly, I'm in town. Why don't we go out and do something? Mm-hmm. And he was so vocal about what are we still doing? Uh, you know, fighting this war and, you know, was, he was very upset about the whole thing um, in a way that I, I didn't imagine. So again, it, that I think that's almost what I picture is who do I know that was in the time. So, yeah. And it surprised me because so many of the other people that I know, but who weren't, this is the, the irony of it, I guess, is that people who were supportive of the military, but weren't necessarily in the military said that the military people support what we're doing in, in these places. And then I talked to him and, um, he, he was less than, less than thrilled with, uh, with the president at the time. I think that it, it just it speaks to the complexity of war. Um, often we just think, oh, we're fighting this just cause. But, but you know, there's always more to it. Always. And, um, and it's something that when we're in the moment of it, it's hard to understand that. It's when we look back. For instance, when we look back at the history of, of World War II and we see the complexity of our involvement and, and of our, of our isolationism before and, and just the motivations and, and all that happened. And, um, this is why it's important to be students of history in some way or another, just to understand what happened in our history so that we can better understand what's happening now. It gives us good insight into, into present you know, politics or wars or situations. So let's see if I can transition a little bit here and say, how, how did, do you see looking back at history inform your, your other series that was more depression era and that kind of thing? Like that's a, that's a whole different piece of history. We might need to, to figure out how to, to interact with and connect with. I think a lot of people today would say it's not possible to to relive that in any significant way but i don't know well you know i think looking back at the 30s i i had a very um i had both an objective view of it and a subject and a very personal view of it um for for instance i was obsessed with the gospel from the time i was 17 
um, after I read Grapes of Wrath for the first time. Okay, that makes sense. I was gonna say an obsession with the Dust Bowl is a little bit um, odd, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the, the the literature connection makes sense. Right. Um, I, I think that from childhood, my grandma would tell me stories about her life in the Great Depression and how they survived and the things they did to make ends meet and to make food stretch and. Um, you know, you better eat that fat off of your meat because in the depression, you know, um, and instead of being annoyed by all of that, I wanted to know more. And so as a kid, I was, I was very intrigued by the great depression. And, um, and then at 17, when I read the grapes of wrath, I, I found this other, like an added on tragedy, um, that, that just amplified everything that was happening and the deep history of why the Dust Bowl happened. And, um, and then reading more and more, I read about the, the stick-to-itiveness of the Oklahoma um, residents who, who fought and tried and survived and um, experienced such great loss. And I just thought, what, what spirit, you know, what, what grit, literal grit. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think maybe this isn't exactly what you were thinking when you wrote it, but one of the things that I talk about a lot um, with the people who, who have the going all the way back to a beginning conversation, the, the pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality mm -hmm. is sometimes you can do everything right and still lose. And I, you know, what happened and why it happened in, in Oklahoma and, and some of the other places that, that led to all of those things you're talking about. Like, you know, I guess people did make mistakes, but boy, did they try hard. It wasn't for lack of, of any kind of effort or, or intention. Well, I mean, and they were, they were manipulated in the first place to move out that way. Um, they were told there's there's so much land and it's fertile and it's it's not fertile land. It's not. It's it's it it does really well for growing native grasses and it's really good grazing land. But they were they were told go out there and then when they had a great wheat ear, plant more, plant more and um and and they the people the farmers they thought they were doing what was right and and um. There's, they just encountered so much hardship, and yet their family bonds were so incredibly strong. And I just thought, what would it be like to be 10 years old and to be encountering all of this? And it's from that, what if? What if I was 10, living in the Dust Bowl, trying to, to be with my family? And, um, and that's, that's where the Pearl books came about. Um, writing Pearl was, was great joy of my life just because she was the kind of character that just was so natural for me to write. I think she's, she's one part scout, um, from To Kill a Mockingbird, one part Ramona Quimby and a whole lot of my grandma. <laughs> that's awesome. So yeah, that, but that's a kind of a departure from a lot of your other stories then, I guess, to write uh, a younger person. So, so maybe tell me the, a little bit of the structure of the story. Again, another case where I've, I've not had the opportunity to read them. So, Well, it's, a, it's from um, Pearl's perspective. It's first person. 
and she is telling the story in her, she's got this, this way of saying things and phrasing things that was really fun to write and very unique. Um, she, she's living in Cimarron County, which was perhaps the hardest hit in Oklahoma in the panhandle. And, and her sister has developmental, um, disabilities. And so she, she's helping to take care of her sister. She's, she's seeing the world and, and having known nothing else other than this, really not knowing anything other than being hit by dust storms once a week or more. Um, and how so old is she again? I'm sorry. She's 10 at the beginning. So in her memory, um, that's, that's basically what it is. Cause the story starts in 1934. Uh, it, it wasn't actually called the Dust Bowl yet, but we fudged the history a little bit. <laughs> That's um, fine. Yeah. But, um, and it's just her talking about her story. And then there's this, this, what she thinks is a hobo that comes to town that tries to derail her life. Um, and it really, it's a question of who is your family? Are you who you are because of, of where you come from or because of, of who loves you and who, who takes care of you and who you love. So it's, um, gosh, it's three books. And I, I don't know that I'll ever write another series, but for her, I would do anything. <laughs> That's awesome. It's so funny when you hear, I love the, this character so much. I would, I would do anything. So it's just because it's come up up lately and this is one of those inside baseball publisher type of things is uh, how did you market and sell something with this subject matter but with uh you know what is effectively a middle grade uh hero so heroine well protagonist yeah i think that was the obstacle to um for some of the publishers who who looked at it and you don't make it easy on us do you I don't, Ever. I don't, I, <laughs> I'm not good at that, but, um, yeah, I'm not good at aiming for the, the center. I, I, you know, I was going to go off on my own tangent, but, um, I think that, that what happened is it, this crazy phenomenon that, you know, it was selling well to my readers, the readers that I had, I had built up, um, with paint chips and my mother's chamomile who, honestly are the best readers in the world because they are so super loyal. Right on. Um, I, I, they are some of, I'm just so blessed to have them, but, um, it was selling moderately well, a cup of dust was, but then it got a bump from book club and it sold like it, I was up and like right next to Stephen King on the bestseller list on Amazon for a day. Like it just sold so fast and so hard and it was it was dumb luck i don't know <laughs> some i think that's publishing right we don't ever know what's gonna hit what's gonna work what what might happen that that gives a bump and then it goes crazy um no if you figure it out let me know because i i try to figure it out and i i get so frustrated with people who say oh if you just do this you know, I, I jump out of my skin when I even hear BookBub because I think people think they hear stories like that and they go, oh, that's all I have to do. Yeah, it's so rare. Well, and it was it was one of those things where I was at a writer's conference 
And I knew that there was there was an ebook sale, and so I was trying to promote it, you know, as you do. And then all of a sudden, I was getting texts from people. And uh, did you see your ranking? Did you see? And it didn't last for a long time. I mean, Stephen King didn't budge. He was not letting me pass him. No, he's not gonna. He's so mean. But um, <laughs> but it was one of those things where we could not have predicted it. We we rode that momentum as long as we could, but it it's not always going to last. So I think that's it was just one of those things that it was a surprise. And And I would say for any authors out there looking to recreate that, like as often as that gives you momentum and and helps there, one of the things that we actually saw when we tried to do those kinds of sales and ads is they destroyed the sales that we'd already built. We thought that it would sort of springboard them. And you went from having consistent sales, you know, somewhat consistent or maybe small growth to a huge spike and then nothing. Like Mm -hmm. it killed them. Like everyone who might have picked it up and read it, bought it in that one time. And then it destroyed the like word of mouth that you were normally getting to build your slow, Mm -hmm. slow reaction. Again, this is sort of inside publishing and most people don't get the like day-to-day numbers that will make most people cry. Uh, we had someone email us this week saying, how do you start a publishing company? He said, don't like, because it's yeah. The days like that are so, so rare, mm-hmm. but it, I think that if you take going back to your loving your character, like if you take your joy from that and that's why you do it mm-hmm. um, or the occasional reader reaction, those, those super loyal people mm-hmm. like, we really do love them because they get it, right? Like, yeah. they, they understand us, <laughs> why when, we do it. When a reader says, you made me feel this way, that's, that's, that's like candy to me. I could eat that up all day. Just hearing, this is, this is how I felt. This is how I reacted. Even if they're not happy about it, I'm, I'm still evoking an emotion that they might have needed to have. Because so often... Like we said earlier, we, we suppress our emotions and fiction sometimes has the power to bring them up um, and, and force us to confront them. So when a, when a reader says that, I don't, I am not the kind of person that looks at sales numbers. I don't understand them. Um, I, my husband looks at them. My agent looks at them. I don't because number one, it's demoralizing. <laughs> and number two, I just don't have time. And I'm not altogether interested. What I'm interested in is that someone picks up something that I wrote and that it, and it, it, they enjoy it or they, they feel something from it or it helps them to understand someone else better. That's, that's what my concern is in all of this. That's my aim. Yeah. I mean, my only concern with numbers and the demoralizing part is. I, I love that reaction. I love when people say, I, I had this emotion or this person made me reconsider this or uh, any of that. And all I think is, okay, now I want to multiply that 10,000 times. Mm-hmm. Like that's like, that should be the power of selling books, particularly selling them in the digital era where you just click on them and they show up. Right. I mean, we all love paper books. Um, <laughs> we, we avoided the, the ebook world um, for as long as we could. I know it sounds silly now to say that, 80% of our sales are ebooks, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, like that's, that's where I get 
demoralized and disheartened. And I guess maybe, you know, this is this is being too vulnerable uh, potentially for a podcast with listeners. But when I, I look at the sales numbers and I think, okay, I've failed every author on this list except for this one and this one. That's, yeah. And, and you know, you try so hard and then you go, oh, it, it didn't, it didn't work. I know. It does. And I don't think that people realize the effort that is put into it and the investment, um, not just financial, which is great. It's a huge investment. Well, um, I had actually had to break that down for someone um, because, again, I work with people in the film business all the time and they, they talk about how expensive film is to produce. And I'm not saying it's not. Don't get me wrong. But, but, you know, they make films and they might work, you know, a couple, three weeks, you know, maybe 30 days on a a film project and then it goes to post-production. And I know they're going to say, well, lots of stuff happens before and after. But some authors spend a year or two years or three years, you know, writing and editing and perfecting a book or sometimes much, much longer. And I think that that's crazy. But even professionals, like, let's say that you only publish one book a year. I think you do more than that. But I just know you. You just, okay, so you just do one book a year. You know, if you had to support yourself on that, well, that book cost, I don't know, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 just in, like, that's how much I would have gotten paid if I went and had a real job, as so many people tell us. So, like, they are so expensive. And that doesn't include all of your editors and the 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 cost over there. So, just, just, just Susie's time writing, writing these books for you is, is valuable, I'm, you know. Well, and I, I tell people, I try to explain to people the reality of it because a lot of people will say, I want to support myself on my writing. And I'm like, do freelance then. Like, ghostwrite. That's that's where the money is, <laughs> not in novel writing. Um, but that's, again, I, I have no concept of money, much to my husband's chagrin. But... Um, he works so hard to make this possible for our family to keep our family going with me doing this job. And we live well below our means, um, cut coupons. And <laughs> we, we don't live a flashy lifestyle because we believe the writing is more important than that, than having a big house than having a brand new iPhone every year or whatever. I don't even know what people spend their money on, (laughs) but, um, (laughs) I think you're about, I think you're close. Yeah. So does it, this is another weird thing. Does it ever annoy you when you see the the Hollywood stories of the writer that gets the hundred thousand dollar advance and you know, the big parties and they send a limo and they fly first class. And (laughs) I think it's funny. I I actually laugh at it because, um, it's so off the mark, like maybe for, five or six authors that's Stephen King yeah Stephen King J.K. Rowling um yep and I think some of them might say oh honey you have no idea like I'm still clipping coupons (laughs) well and maybe not them but yeah maybe not them but a lot of um even my my author friends in the AB in a um, general market they they struggle financially um even those who have won national book awards, it's, it's not easy. Nobody's, you know, most of us are not rolling in the dough, but, um, but I do think it's funny on movies when that's the expectation and that's what's portrayed. Yeah. Yeah. It makes me laugh. (laughs) And then sometimes cry a little. Yeah. Just a little. Just a tiny bit. 
I had another thought along that line, and then I guess it's gone. Oh, well, it, it's a silly, a silly example, but the, this idea of not really thinking about or paying attention to sales, maybe that's not so good for me to do. Um, it's good for the authors. But you know, our our college was a unique experience, just as a example. Like, you know, we read books and we talk about them, and that was about it. And we they did not ever publish grades, and we were discouraged from actually getting a copy of our transcript while we were there. So just this idea of what what do you value? What is the what is the important part? So uh, it, instead of report cards, they had uh, these little meetings where all of your teachers, they call called them tutors, would get together and sit in a room across the table from you, like six of them or so. And they would talk about you like you're not there and tell you what tell each other what you were like in class. And like, that was how you got to evaluate what you were like. That sounds absolutely terrifying. <laughs> oh, admittedly, they only do that for two years. Um, so okay. after that, you get to you. Well, and after that, you get to actually talk and speak up for yourself and, and say something first. So wow, <laughs> I'm not yeah. sure if that's better or worse. Um, I think for me, it's with every book. It's the growing audience, um, the growing readers, the readers who who hang out on my Facebook page and comment on things or or private message me. I think that's the better metric for me. You do have the really great readers in that respect. Like. I do. And I think that um, when I think of the whole thing as building relationships rather than selling books, it feels a whole lot less icky. Um and it feels it helps me to realize I am providing something that people need. Um, I am serving um, rather than I'm just writing this so you buy it so that I can um, pay down my advance. <laughs> so um, I think that that's that's how I measure things. Um, I know we're not supposed to read our reviews, but I do because. Sometimes you can learn more that way about who are your readers, what what are they looking for, how can I best serve them, and sometimes those reviews, even the one stars, I can read and say, okay, I missed the mark here. This is what people are really aching for. Maybe I can try and and serve them in that way. Um, well, and I don't know if you had this experience, but I had to uh, encourage another writer who is much harder on herself when it comes to things like that and feedback that she gets to say, look, it's a good chance those one-star reviews are not your readers. You know, yeah. this is oh, not yeah. for them. Mm-hmm. You know, this is, this is not what they were looking for. Uh, but that, and I think that if that really bothers you, then maybe you shouldn't read the reviews. But I think if you can, if you can engage like that and, and have that relationship, like mm-hmm. how many times do you see a review and think, Oh, I'd love to actually sit and talk to you about it. Cause you, oh, yeah. this is something you hated, but. I, l- I want to have this conversation now. Well, and I have a very thick skin now. I think that um, in the beginning when I was get- I got rejected by a lot of agents, a lot of agents. I've been rejected by some really great people, <laughs> um, rejected uh, from publishing houses, from literary magazines. I think that every single rejection was just another layer of skin that toughened me up a little bit um, where 
now I see a one-star review and I look to see, is it valid? Because sometimes it is. Or is the person just spouting off? And sometimes when they spout off, it's funny to me. <laughs> um, my favorite review, my favorite one-star review was one word. And it was just depressing. And it was for one of the depression era books. And I was like, you got it. But, um, <laughs> but um, at this point in my career. I know they say don't reply to reviews, but that would have been hilarious. I know. I really wanted to. I was like, oh, should I shouldn't? I shouldn't. No. But I really want to. Um, but at this point in my career, I, I can look at that objectively. And I know without a shadow of a doubt that my worth is not in how many stars I get on Amazon. My worth is in being a daughter of my heavenly father. And so when I'm able to keep that perspective, I can, I can take any criticism, maybe not to my face. That's awkward, but online is different. Well, and most people aren't ever willing to criticize you to your face, which is why you know, having that honest conversation is so, so important. Mm -hmm. I, I, I've, well, actually we won't go into that. That's, that's a, that's a tangent for maybe another day. Uh, so just because of the, the link that we've run, and I don't know if there were other subjects that you wanted to hit on. Um, but you know, most of these, most of these have been run about an hour and we're a little over that. So, um, but I, I was looking back at some of the, the questions that I, I sent you just as these are interesting, like conversation starter type of questions. And it makes me wonder, and it's a, it's a turn on the why do you write what you write. But um, the, the one is a sort of fill in the blank. The world would be better if, you know, how, how do you imagine that the world would be better if, and, you know, how do you see your books and what you, maybe not even your books, like, a lot of authors do have lives outside of writing. I am surprised to learn. So, you know, I think now that I'm a mom and now that I'm in my 40s, I think that my opinion of what would make the world a better place has changed. Um, and I do think the world would be a better place if we actually listened. To one another and instead of listening to respond we listen to understand um because i think that you know the, the the massive chaos i see online it's because people aren't listening to anybody else um when i see my kids arguing it's because they're not listening to each other and when i believe it or not i'm not always right <laughs> But when I, when I misunderstand or I get frustrated, it's usually because I'm not taking the time to listen. And I do think the world would be a better place if we just stopped talking sometimes. Okay, so that's really funny that that's your answer. Because the thing I said, let's not go there, was this... Okay, so it, it's this vision. And you we've all seen the sort of talking head news talk shows, right? Where you get three or four people and they yell at each other for you know five or six minutes. And I had this image and I thought, all right, well, actually, let me give some more background because what, what boggles my mind about those is that 
they come when they come on they all know each other and they're all friends they shake hands they sit down they yell at each other for five minutes and at the end they shake hands they say what a great segment that was and they all go out and have dinner together so i don't understand that like that they actually like each other and yet they do everything they can to tear each other down but i thought wouldn't it be better if those same three or four people got together and maybe it wasn't a quick eight minute segment as long as it took and came with the idea of here's my opinions but i'm willing to change my mind let's let's talk about it let's let's hear and listen to each other and and actually i don't know have some empathy for one another or try to at least take a minute and say you might be right let's let's consider that that possibility so i i, I don't i have a friend who um she she's not a believer in christ and she she calls herself agnostic and and we've had some incredibly deep conversations that actually strengthened my faith because I had to, in order to maintain the friendship, I had to be intentional about listening to her point of view. And she decided to be intentional to listen to mine. And um, I think that what, what made it possible to do that is that one day she said, I'm willing to admit that I'm wrong if you're willing to admit that you are too some you know if if we get to that point um to to try and learn and i'm willing to learn that's and a scary that, position to put yourself as a christian right as to say oh am i uh so i'm sorry well and i think that that as christians we do get things wrong we get things wrong about the bible we get things wrong about how we're supposed to interact with the world um and it is so important to to be conscious of that and to allow space for doubt. Um, because where, where I've grown most as a Christian is after a, a very prolonged season of doubt. Um, and I grew in ways that I would not have if I hadn't wrestled with the doubt. Um, but this, I'm sure of everything mentality, that's not healthy for us. And if we're so sure about everything, we don't really need Christ. We don't need, um, to, to keep digging into the Bible to learn more and more. Um, but that took a lot of years of messing up for me to get there. I don't want you to think that I was just enlightened. I, I hurt people. I did. And I, I said the wrong thing a lot. But um, making yourself vulnerable to, to being in that situation does change things. Yeah. And the, the other one that got me along that same line is, it was a, it's not exactly the same thing, but someone said, uh, trying to remember, it was a weird conversation I got to watch. Someone said, I'm amazed how dumb I was when I was 18. <laughs> and the other person who was slightly older said, what's really amazing is how, uh, that you don't realize how dumb you are now, but you will when I'm, you're my age. Yeah. <laughs> and, so yeah. So just uh, uh, that goes back to understanding yourself, I guess, is even what you were saying and having empathy for yourself and realizing, wow, like, I think I've come a long way, but I'm probably still a pretty good screw up. And that ought to give me some perspective on, on who I am and who other people are. Yeah. I think it's healthy to, to look at yourself and just be like, what are you doing? <laughs> Every day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Maybe not that that's, 
it's a bit of a pride thing too to say yeah i I definitely think about that every day because i probably don't like some days we do really good right (laughs) yeah yeah those are the days i sleep in and i go to bed early (laughs) yeah (laughs) because i don't have a lot of awake time to mess up (laughs) that's funny so is there anything else that you would like to uh to say or any you know we obviously like we'll put links to your your website and all your social media where you should definitely go and uh and check out Susie and all of the the different places she is she's very fun and interactive and if you're a fan of her stuff uh she'll definitely like there's there's a relationship to be had there that isn't necessarily true with everyone so uh with every author so go and go and have that experience um but I didn't know if there was something in particular you wanted to, to say or, or talk about. I don't know. I think I said a lot of things. <laughs> well, I think that's the idea. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, we do really appreciate you and everything that you've done and, and the way you've grown. And, you know, you're, we, we joke uh, that you're, you're sort of a graduate of, of white yeah. fire as a person, like you've gone and, and found your way and, and found a, a bigger, a bigger world to, to talk, to talk to and to sew into. So we, we really love that. Well, and I so appreciate that you took a chance on me and I know you say you didn't have a lot to lose, but it's still a big risk and I appreciate it. Well, I think everyone was, in my opinion, everyone was blessed by the experience, whether it was publishing it, you got to, to write it and found a home and anyone who's read your two white fire books there's a lot of everyone loves them let's just say that whenever all the feedback i've heard i've never really paid attention to your any one star reviews if there are any there so i don't i think that they're on goodreads oh i don't spend as much time at goodreads as i should it's uh there's meaner on goodreads yeah sometimes it's it's a little overwhelming too I, I just can't keep up with it. You keep up with, again, another place where I get notifications all the time that you did something over there. I think, oh, I wish I was, I wish oh, I was that good at things. I use Goodreads as a reader first and foremost, and I read a ton. So that's, that's what that, because I, I want to know how many books I read every year. <laughs> that's what oh. I <laughs> Yeah, there's, there's something to that. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I mean, I think most authors are readers first, so. You'd hope so. You'd hope so. Do you read what you write normally, or are you all over the place? I well, no, I no, no. I I mean the the same kinds of things. Um, I read, I I read across the spectrum. I I don't read the back cover copy ever, and so I end up. It makes me an adventurous reader. (laughs) So if a cover looks good, I'll read it. That's. That's hilarious. Like, this is a funny to, thing to admit as a publisher. I never read synopsis because I'll either read the whole thing or I'll read three chapters, and that's going to be about all your the way it's going to be. So, yeah, I I just I don't want to know what's going to happen. I want to be surprised um, because that to me that's the the purpose. I'm not one that reads the back like the last page. People that do that that freaks me out. But um, I used to do that. I admit. Yeah. Because I like trying to figure out how you get there, how the how the character's journey brings you there. But okay, if a book is compelling enough, I'll read it again to find that out. But but um, 
No, I just, and I, my editor, Kelsey from Ravel, she said it, it, she cannot understand how I ever find good books by not reading the back cover. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Well, that's interesting. We've just been having that debate of how do people find good books? There was a, there's a avid readers of Christian fiction Facebook group. And they, there was just that question. Yeah. And I was happy and confused and angry at some of the answers all at the same time. That, that group, sometimes I'm like, what, what? I don't understand what you're like, what's going on here. But, um, I, I appreciate the way that they share books with one another. They're, those readers, they're, they're good word of mouth. Oh my goodness. They're, well, they're avid. I, I would, I think of them almost in my head as rabid because <laughs> like, if you post a question of, I would like to read a book about this or that, there's 40 of them within an hour of, yeah. of that question coming out. And they're all good, well thought out responses in general. Yeah. Like, so readers out there. there are. Yeah. So we love them. Well, thanks for coming on and taking some time out of your day today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. This was fun. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you thought so. Yeah. Sarah Bennett said it was it was three quarters fun. So. Oh, I thought it was a hundred percent fun, but I well, you're you're nicer than Sarah. No. Oh, oh I'm going over. <laughs> oh no, Sarah's hilarious. She's okay. she's a new author. Um, her book doesn't come out until May. Very very first one, but it's it's snarky, sarcastic YA. Oh. So. Okay. So that yeah. Makes, that her response makes sense now. Thank you for joining us today for our talk with Susie Finkbeiner. For more information about Susie, check out the show notes for links to her website, blog, social media, and books. And if you check out our website, whitefire.tv unexpressed, Susie would ask that you spend time in prayer to help end human trafficking. She points out, one of the most powerful weapons we have against the darkness of this world is to pray for the light to outshine it. John 1, 5. We know that in Christ we are more than conquerors, Romans 8, 37, and that no evil is beyond his reach. We're encouraged throughout scripture to bring our burdens and the concerns of the world directly to God because he cares for us. 1 Peter 5, 7. You can follow the prayer guide provided by World Vision we link to in the show notes. This podcast is sponsored by Read Whitefire. There you can read the first two chapters of any Whitefire Publishing Group company's books. And if you like what you read, they're available for purchase in print format as well as electronic formats for all the most popular e-readers. Some books even have signed copies available. And if you're a listener of this podcast, there's a chance you're a good candidate for Platy People, our membership program for unique readers. For just $5 a month or $50 a year, Platy People members get to choose two free books per month, a free novella, 15% off all purchases, including gift certificates, and free shipping to U.S. addresses. Why choose Ordinary when you can read Extraordinary? Unexpressed is part of the Whitefire Podcast Network. Please visit whitefire.tv slash podcast to find other shows we know you're going to love.